When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Secrets to Selling Your Business, the podcast for entrepreneurs and business owners looking to unlock the secrets behind successful business transitions. Join our host, Jacob Koenig, a partner at Woodbridge International, as he gives you the knowledge to navigate complexities, embrace strategic shifts, and prepare you to sell your business with no regrets. At Woodbridge, we know how to give you the wisdom to achieve your ultimate success. And now, here's your host, Jacob Koenig. Welcome to the show. Today, we're joined with by Jennifer Cotrulia. She's a partner for outsourcing, advisory, and business development at Citroen Cooperman. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure. Um, so could you start by maybe sharing a bit about your journey? How did you become a partner at Citroen Cooperman? And, and can you explain a little bit more about your uh, your unique role there, um, managing strategic relationships? Sure. So uh, I've actually known Citroen Cooperman for about 16 years um, and have been involved in the firm for a little over two. I I started out in in audit for insurance, which I know sounds super exciting for people. I also uh, was part of an entrepreneurial family and a, a range of, of businesses. So I've always had the, the bug. Um, and in after spending some time in audit and in uh, corporate as a controller, I really just knew that I wanted to work with businesses year round and wanted something of my own. So in 2004, I started my own CPA firm uh, working as an outsourced accountant and CFO and advisor to a range of uh, small and mid-market companies, really helping them with their accounting, but also their operational support and ideally scaling for exit. And so Citroen Cooperman, I met early on in that journey and they were very generous as far as collaborating and and referring business. And we developed a really nice relationship. Um, Over the years, I I had a a number of different parts of my journey, but ultimately Mm -hmm. over the last few years, they knew they were being acquired by and partnering with New Mountain Capital. And I was generously invited to join the team and, and help move the firm forward. So I, I did join as a partner. Excellent. So how have your experiences then as a, as a co-founder and entrepreneur influenced and informed your current advisory approach? So I, I think it, it really lends a lot to my role in the firm and, and working with clients in several ways. First, uh, you know, growth and, and dreams about exiting are, are great, but I am always very driven by financial performance and by planning and by having a, a roadmap versus winging it. Um, I'm also just very passionate about businesses making it through that successfully. And, and I think because I've seen so many businesses run for an exit and dedicate so much as far as money and time and resources. And then if it doesn't work out the way they hope, they actually can put themselves in such a terrible position and oftentimes find that they can't continue. Uh, that I, I really want for that several years before to help them have a game plan, keep the right books, keep the right structure so that it's not a sudden like really retooling in order to be able to exit. Absolutely. Having that correct proper preparation ahead of time, that's definitely going to make for a much smoother and uh, and more successful process. So. Yes. 
And so, so often we don't see it. Yeah, exactly. And what types of clients make up your your client base now? Are you working more with private equity firms directly or advising their subsidiaries, other mid-market companies, or how does it work? So we work with a number of private equity firms. That's one of our, our top areas um, alongside real estate. And so we, when we're working with the firms, absolutely, whether it's our you know our own relationship with, with New Mountain or others that we work with, they're asking us to work with their portfolio companies right. to create dashboards that help things roll up for performance management. And then also with the individual portfolio companies provide outsourced accounting and advisory and technology support and the other things that create ideally a templated and uniform structure across the portfolio companies so that they get to the point where we're just making information they can use to grow and exit. And so that it's easier for the portfolio company to for the private equity firm rather to manage them. Understood. And so when it comes to M&A deals in particular, what have you found you know, has been most uh, challenging in, in that arena? Uh, 99% of the time, it's actually is so for a merger. As yeah. It's the integration. People don't, I, I think, um, and it's, it's true of people as well. You tend to look for people that supplement your weaknesses, right. but that you don't realize when you bring something like that in, that's going to highlight your weaknesses. And so in terms of making sure before that marriage day that um, things are aligned and there is a game plan and there is, frankly, a counseling approach <laughs> for when things don't go as planned. Um, I just think everybody gets so excited about filling the voids on both sides that there's not adequate planning about what's going to happen when the honeymoon period is over and, and you're living it and even how to make yeah. it successful. So I, I think that's a, a top thing. And then as far as acquisition, I, I think Citroen Cooper and, you know, we're in a great position to speak to this directly because we're now, again, as part of New Mountain, we have our own growth path and, and expectations going forward. And I do think there's a big shift from that entrepreneurial phase to now saying, okay, you have to make a next turn and what are the benchmarks and how are you going to make them? And and it's it's a push, you know, I, I love the, I'll call it the drama of it, but the intensity of driving to that next turn, it's a very different animal for most people. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, t- talking about the, the drama and the intensity, uh, you know, do you find oftentimes working with uh, especially entrepreneurial founders and, uh, and CEOs that the emotional element comes into play uh, frequently, in, in especially when it comes to the deal heating up and getting close to completion? Uh, sure. I mean, in terms of getting close to completion, I think, you know, a lot of that is obviously, does everybody agree on the number and right. what that yeah. means in terms of the existing owner staying on and what that relationship's going to look like. Um, but also, I, I think it's getting real about how much autonomy will exist afterward, because I, I do yeah. think even if the conversations happen, owners have a very uh, vague understanding of what their life is going to be after that transaction mm. and they're used to hiring and firing as they feel appropriate and used to spending right. you know, even their own money if they think that's the right thing to do and and suddenly you know playing by a rule book and, and a set of metrics and expectations is very different yeah having that knowledge ahead of time and not not being surprised by it at the last minute i think that's definitely a major uh point to smooth things out for sure and so in in your experience especially now with with citron cooperman working with portfolio companies in particular how does that differ versus your role with uh, the family office association and, and working with um, 
you know, family-owned uh, company? Actually, it's not that different. Hmm. Uh, so the, I'll say certainly pre-transaction for, right. for companies, meaning that you know, family offices and others, you the more money you have, you hope that best practices are observed and there's right accounting in place and all of those things, but it can become very easy to get distracted by the bright, shiny objects and everything else and decide those other things are not material. And so I can sit in meetings where you can just, in the course of conversation, can count the thousands of dollars that are leaking all over the place. Mm-hmm. And um, and I say to someone, when you talk about even what accounting would cost or what advisory would cost, and somebody says, I don't want to pay 5000 or $10,000 like, well, I'm just added up the couple hundred thousand that I can easily tally you've blown in this, you know, just from this conversation. And so I think family offices in terms of best practice and internal controls, when they say, well, I have XYZ person who manages all of my stuff, then I, I want to know where they're going to see me about their embezzlement case. <laughs> so, so I think, again, uh, having standard controls, having right. good accounting, having the right staff at the next level. So that COO and that that management at the next level versus your family and friends is super important. You know, post-transaction, I would say that the pressure is on them to continue growth. And I I liken that to families who need to pass on to a next generation. That messaging and those systems and everything else also have to pass on. Otherwise, things implode soon after. Yeah, and, and we find when we bring our clients to uh, to market frequently, you know, there are issues with uh, with the the accounting, and and it comes as a surprise to our clients, uh, and that surprise is often you know the emotional trigger that makes things difficult uh, down the line. And, and so, I'd be curious to hear: Do you have any experiences where where you know the, their stories are otherwise, where where you've had uh, issues in the midst of a uh, of, uh, transaction? Um, sure. I think it happens for one of two reasons, either maybe three, but a business really feels they have employed a, a good accounting staff, but they don't have the expertise to manage or oversee it. And then they get into due diligence and find out that the books are a mess and that, you know, XYZ accountant has posted journal entries, whatever has happened in the books, not accurate. And so this business they thought they had that would, you know, skate through a, an opportunity that's in their lap, they can't take the same way. The second is that occasionally you'll find owners or management who think that they can create books that are going to be more appealing in a sales transaction. And they really don't realize that people have figured out the due diligence process Mm -hmm. to detect things like that and that that's probably not going to work. And and honestly, the third is what the cost of that process is going to require. And so starting the savings account (laughs) early on for all of the extra demands of of that process and in taxes and everything else, you know, companies find out at that point that they weren't compliant with sales tax or they were compliant with any number of other things. And so I always I, I find due diligence to be very stressful uh, for people just because of all the things it's going to uncover that they thought they knew. Yeah. And uh, being prepared, I think, for the unknown. That's uh, that's one of the major uh, lessons here, maybe. For uh, for those who are looking to sell their business, absolutely. Yes. And I'm curious to hear, Jennifer, from from your perspective, uh, have you seen any major changes or otherwise in the M and A environment this year in particular? Any impact from the the banking crisis or higher interest rates? For sure. I mean, uh, as everyone knows, uh, money the ease of getting money has right. has dried up quickly. And uh, it, the thing that hasn't changed, which I hope catches on quickly, is that you can't bring a business plan, a crappy business. In front of investors and get money now. Right. So 
Uh, so I see it all the time where maybe that could get you a million dollar check before or get you a $5 million buyout or something else. Whether it's VC or private equity, it may have worked a year, year and a half or two years ago. That money is not there. So you have a, a significant amount of competition going for the checks that are available and you need to be polished and, and ready. So I think it all comes back to the same thing. Everyone thinks their idea is the best and the shiniest and everybody wants to tell you the great things they're doing as if it's the only thing. There are very limited things that are the only thing in their space. And so you really have to be the best, you know, the triple threat of your market to get that check. Uh, I also find on the family office side that somebody will invest the first million and then try to get everybody else to go in. Right. And then when everybody else looks at it, they find that that first person had an emotional attachment mm. that nobody else would ever invest in. I see. <laughs> when they look at it, they're like, what were you thinking? And and they right. start to tear it apart. Understood. And and from our perspective, we've actually seen plenty of, uh, of buyers still out there. It seems like the industry is still active, still looking for, for investment. What we hear most frequently from the buy side, frankly, is that there's not a, there's a dearth of, uh, of quality assets out there. And, and so, I mean, especially when it comes to diligence, I think that's where we have seen more stringency, let's say, where, where a diligence process may have taken 30, 45 days in, in the past. It's, uh, it's getting a bit deeper, a bit more, uh, maybe at a higher level of um, a deeper dive. Is, is that something that you've noticed or um, is that just my perception? No, well, I would agree with that, and I think in different ways we're we're saying sort of the same thing. In that, you, I'm not seeing people go to a pitch event and walk out with magic checks at this point. There is a longer process. People are more skeptical. They're asking, to your point, more questions about infrastructure and about you know wanting to make sure these companies are going to be around for the long term. I'm not sure that people ask so many questions before about who your bank was, like to make sure right. <laughs> and how you were supported there and how you were. Uh, you know, protected. So, so I do think, and the decision process has just gotten much longer. So, to your point, I, I fully agree that the money is there. Switch is taking more to flip now. Yeah, no, I, I like that. Switch is taking longer to flip, but uh, you know, and and we always say at Woodbridge that that time kills deals, and we always are pushing to get things moving as fast, efficiently, as as transparently as possible. So, I think that speaks to the importance of having a good CPA and. And having that preparation again ahead of time. Uh, so I'm curious to hear from your perspective. You know, advising companies who are maybe a year or two or three even out from uh, from a sale. What is it that you advise your clients on, and what is our, what are the most important things to to keep in mind? The two biggest things are first um, go through an assessment. Uh, you know, a mock due diligence yeah. now where you decide to make that move. Um, and we frankly have a number of companies that come to us to do that and they go through the process and we lay out for them, here are all the things that you are going to face, the things that should be cleaned up, the things that need to be addressed. So all the things we were talking about before, yeah. there, there's no magic to it. We can tell a company what going to happen with reasonable certainty. And and so then we say, here's the path to, to correct those things and be ready. Uh, again, obviously variables that we can't really. Best possible chance. And so, and then you watch a business walk away from it and, and you can tell that it's because they're uncomfortable and they think that avoidance will make that go away. And then they either have to or have to move forward because they've hit some trigger point in their family or something else where they need to make an exit or they receive an opportunity that is their dream moment and they're not ready. And so you say, well, it's a shame as a practitioner, it, it's heartbreaking because you're like, this was inevitable. Yeah. And so, but you can't force that business to, to do the right thing ahead of time. 
Exactly. You know, and I think that's what we always see as advisors is, you know, we can always try and, and give examples and, and give uh, some of the experience that we've had. But ultimately, you know, it is all uh, up to the uh, the business owner themselves to, to make those decisions. So look, I, I think uh, this has been a great conversation about m and I'd like to take it maybe a step back again and to hear broadly, you know, what are the strategies that you would recommend for cultivating strong strategic relationships uh, in the business world? One of the top things I think is just beginning with the end in mind. So most of the time when I meet a startup or somebody still in their first couple rounds, I, and I say to the, say to them, what do you want to do? And they talk about, well, I'm going to go for additional rounds or here's my exit plan. And, and I say, okay, so how are you handling your business development and your, your networking and your relationship building and the comments that, and their accounting or whatever else? And they say, well, we are solely focused right now on product development and on we are running lean and we are, you know, really not looking at those other things yet. And those are the same people then who come to me when they then need money and say, how do I tap into your network? And uh, they can't because I can't do that. So, but, um, uh, but also, uh, you know, they're not, they don't have the relationships they need. They don't, and they haven't practiced the process. So that right plan from day one, and again, that savings for what they're going to need to do, responsibly realizing that those other things can't wait until the day you're going to need funding or want to exit is, I think, critical. Or you're stuck. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and it's funny you mentioned, you know, thinking uh, starting with the end in mind. We've had a couple of entrepreneurs on the podcast recently, and and both of them in succession have, have had that exact same advice. So it's definitely right on. Well, I, I hope I hope businesses hear this and hear your other podcasts and yeah. take it if you can help one or two businesses. Right, that feels good. Yeah, exactly. And are there any upcoming trends that you see uh, more broadly um, that might impact private equity, venture capital, and and your approach more more specifically? Um, you know, I think the next couple of years you're seeing right now everybody seems to be holding so tight. Still, you see this mm-hmm. across um, you know deploying. You mentioned which I agree with that there's yeah. still buyers out there for businesses, but just in terms of the movement of money. Everyone's so cautious. Um, and and so suddenly going into Q4, three and four, everybody is, you know, either out of money for business development or out of money to do these other things. I, I'm very opposed to that. I, I think a market like this is when you, if you've saved late to our point, you hit the gas. So, but if for, for those who aren't there, I, I think you're going to find that this, this has happened in every cycle. People are going to reach a point where they have no choice, right? You have to move forward. You have to drive the business forward. And so those who do have the reserves and they're just being conservative about it will have to start to free that up and, and get a little courageous about being in the market. Those who haven't appropriately, they're either going to drive debt or they're going to have some struggles. And so I think from an acquisition standpoint, you're going to see that happen and probably increase because people aren't going to be able to stay where they are. Excellent. Well, that that was all I had in terms of uh, questions prepared. Are, are there anything, um, any other points or otherwise that you'd like to make sure we hit on? Well, I mean, I would love, I, I know you share this as part of your shows, but, um, you know, next uh, six, nine, 12 months, what do yeah. you expect to see through year end as people uh, finish up there? For me, we're watching them finish their tax returns and go through that nightmare. <laughs> What are you seeing come up? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was um, I was speaking on a panel at the ACG in uh, in Atlanta in February, and the the panel had a consensus that the first half of the year was going to be a little bit challenging, and the second half things would really start to to pick up, and uh, and we'd see a tremendous you know pent up demand for activity. And at the time, you know, everyone was still calling for a recession. It was going to hit any moment now, and and it never materialized. But at the same time. 
that fear of a recession, as you were saying, has, has gotten people a little bit tight, holding on to their money and, and maybe not pulling the trigger, not flipping the switch. Um, we are starting to now see a, a real tidal wave uh, of, um, you know, the bids coming in have been more uh, more and more aggressive, but it feels like uh, we've really turned a corner here. Uh, the market has been picking up. So I, I think... Uh, Although that recession in the middle was kind of missing from the forecast, otherwise the um, the the prognostication has been pretty pretty accurate. Uh, it does feel like we're um, we're really hitting a, a, another stride in uh, in M and A activity into year round, um, and I would say you know likely into at least the beginning of uh, of next year. But how about yourself? What are, what are you seeing? Um, well, I think it kind of yeah, it goes to that point is that people have sat still as long as they can. Or again, I, I do think as tax season does have some relationship because as people become more certain yeah. about when they landed, especially those who I mentioned may not have had their books in order. Right. Once the mystery is solved and the returns are done, people mm-hmm. feel more concrete about their decisions going forward. But to your point, I just think people are only conditioned to sit still for a period of time yeah. um, and then life has to continue. And so so I do think M&A, shoot back to the point we're making, would be driven by people saying, now I have to make a decision. Either I've gotten tight and in trouble yeah. and I have to exit or now because the right opportunities are coming up, um, there's just that energy there and, and the opportunity. So I think it's exciting. And, and uh, you know, anything that sparks energy and movement, I, I feel yeah. Good. So I think that's catching on as well, which I, is great. Great. Excellent. All right. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you uh, again. <laughs> yeah, appreciate it. All right. Take care. Thanks. Thanks so much, Jacob. Appreciate it. All right. You as well. Right. Thank you for listening to another episode of Secrets to Selling Your Business, the podcast for entrepreneurs and business owners looking to unlock the secrets behind successful business transitions. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guest and their insights. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts.